0: Uh, mostly this afternoon's talk is about um, it's like the beginning of a talk on the seven factors of enlightenment Uh, I hope I can get to the first two Uh, so the seven factors are mindfulness investigation energy rapture calm, concentration, and equanimity. And the the three that uh, happen after mindfulness, the investigation, energy, and rapture are all the energizing factors. And the calm, concentration, and equanimity are considered the tranquilizing factors. And mindfulness is considered to be... um, like the weft of a of a weaving Wait a minute, no the warp mindfulness is like the warp of a weaving it's like the it's like the it's necessary for all the other factors to come into balance and to and to develop so I'll be spending probably a lot of time on mindfulness all right uh, this talk and some on investigation A few months ago, I was driving um, and had the radio on. It's not often I get that experience. And there was a a program on that. um, The interviewer was interviewing a man who had been the principal of a high school near Boston, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. And I'm not sure exactly when this was, 20 years ago or 18 years ago, but sometime he had been a principal of the school for a long time and he had retired and um, he had been asked to develop a high school where people who were in the kind of normal category or gifted or... Um, really mentally handicapped or physically handicapped um, or learning disabled. I don't know the uh, modern politically correct word for that but there's probably a a word for that now that's different than I was um, trained. But just like the whole range of um, physical and um, emotional mental intelligence, he was asked to create a high school that integrated everyone. And in that time period, it was considered crazy, you know, not possible. And that it would really drag down the more intelligent, you know, in a more, um, the more kind of, uh, again, from norm, the normal range and above, it, it was always considered that this wouldn't be good for those students. And I you know it's, I find it even hard to talk about this because it, it so touched me when I listened to him, I, like it just makes me cry what he discovered like he discovered that um, by holding everyone accountable for their best that everyone did better, and he found that the 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 students that were in that more normal range to more um, gifted range were actually the most, they did the best because they could see that, the, the, that their, their friends and students in the classrooms um, were having to work so hard at things that were somewhat more easier for them. And it, it was like it just cut through their arrogance it just cut through their sense of, like, taking for granted what they had and not working up to their potential. But really, it was like everyone in the community affected each other, and it was all based on doing your best and being held accountable for doing your best. Um, and it was, it was an extraordinary school. Uh, and I guess I just feel like we always... Um, Sometimes on a retreat, not that we're in that extreme a category, but we can tend to forget that what our best is is unique. Uh, but it, it is something that we need to hold ourselves to, hold ourselves accountable to. And I think where we get in trouble is where we will want or get attached to the results of the effort. We want to control our practice. We want to control what's happening through the result of the effort, not with just that pure exploration, pure investigation. And and this is very paradoxical. It's very hard to do to hold ourselves accountable to our best in each other And then really just (laughs) have that sense of like, um, trusting that whatever we're working with in our practice is what we're working with and not to worry about what's happening for other people. In a very um, Different way, but si- like it, it, it's similar. Over some years, I had a student come to a retreat that um, it was very challenging for him to come to, a, you know, do re- day after day after day of retreat. Um, and he would shake, really, you know, his body would just shake and shake during the sittings and over years. And I would notice that he would have a thermos that he carried around with him and after a few years when he came in for an interview i could smell that it was coffee and he was he was drinking coffee all day all night and you know it was making him shake and it was just it you know you notice these things as a teacher but i noticed it was just so challenging him for him Uh, and no one would sit near him ever there'd be like this big, wide (laughs) space, because he shook, right? And then one retreat, this woman came to this retreat, um, and she came in for an interview, and I said to her, wow, you are the first person I've seen who's been willing to sit next to this person. And I was like, I was so happy that you did that, and so grateful. And I said, how how come you did that? Why did you do that? She didn't know that no one would sit next to him for years. And she said, oh, I just felt like I saw him sitting there shaking. And I thought, you know, if he can do this, I can do this. Nothing about her being right bothered or like You know, just not at all getting that sense of being bothered. So much the sense of like, wow, very similar, right? If he can do this, I can do this. Inspiration. And I got to tell you, they helped... You know, it's like no words ever spoken. And they helped each other in the practice just by sitting next to each other. Like, a lot. I could see it. You know, so we... We have to remember that, you know, we slog along. You know, one of my favorite ever quotations is from a book um, by Kathleen Norris, and she she had moved to North Dakota from Hawaii, Honolulu, uh, to help care for her grandmother when her grandmother was dying, uh, and she started to get to know these Benedictine monks that lived nearby. There was a monastery nearby. And after some years, uh, her grandmother died. She inherited the house. She moved there Um, and she started getting to know the place more, the, the monastery. So she decided to write a book about her experience getting to know these monks and she interviewed them and she saved her, she saved this interview with the oldest monk there, he was 92. He'd been there since he was very young. She asked him, um, what is your biggest obstacle to God? And he didn't think twice. Like, it was one of those things that didn't go through the thought process. He just said, oh, the other monks. You know, and it's just, um, (laughs) that's how it is. And yet, here we are. I mean, it's like, and yet we we might say for all of us, you know, if we could just go off and not have to be bothered <laughs> with uh, each other and just do it ourselves, it's actually not possible. And it, it's really all the stuff we go through with each other, you know, that really is what makes it possible to see our stuff again and again. You know, and I... I, just, I didn't. I wasn't planning to talk about this, but it's like um, it's. This is reminding me of um, earlier this year. Um, there was this wild feral cat that came by my place, and she was so skinny and uh, starving. And I knew that I travel a lot, and I went out there and I told her, "Look, you know." I am not a good person for you to get involved with, but I'm like willing to give you some milk. But please don't, you know, I'm going to be gone for long periods, and who knows what she got out of that? But so I started feeding her milk every day, and it was like I knew that I didn't want to get to like whole food, right? To you know, cat food bought because I didn't want her to get too dependent on me. And then after a little bit. I had been away for a long time. I came back. She was still alive, but very skinny, starving. Uh, started giving her more milk. And then she started going through a half gallon a day. And I'm like, oh, something's not right. <laughs> is a lot of milk, really. I'd pour it in. <laughs> She'd lick it all up, you know, like a little teeny tongue. would just lick it all up, and another thing of milk, another thing of milk. And I'm like, something's wrong. And then I started looking at her closer, and I'm like, oh she's pregnant right so here you know there's this care and connection but i didn't sign up for that right i didn't i didn't in my mind i hadn't signed up for that and it's a very long story but it turns out not only was she pregnant at that point but she had already had kittens and she was hiding them from me So she already had had kittens, and I had to go away. And um, You know, when you care about something, it gets complex, yeah? It it doesn't stay simple, but we want to control. So it turns out that when I got back the next time, there were four cats there. Four. From one little moment, right, of putting a little milk in a jar, you know, in a thing. There were four. Um... And I, you know, looked in the, up in the internet, and because I decided, well, they better be fixed, right? If they don't get fixed, we're going to have twenty-four cats soon, and this is a big problem in Hawaii. There are huge, huge feral cat colonies, huge. Like, and really, it's the only answer is to for different people to take on fixing them. And anyway. Um, <laughs> got them fixed trapped them you know the whole business were dewormed shots uh and then they you know you start to get to know them but they will never let you touch them but there was an article i read on the internet that that said managing your feral cat colony managing your feral cat colony and i'm like no it's not a colony (laughs) i'm not managing a cat colony this is a family (laughs) And I started projecting all the stuff. Like, it was amazing. I wasn't even doing this with other human beings. I There were four cats, and I knew she only had two kittens because I had to arrange, like, people to come feed these beings when I was away. It's like I had the whole schedule. You know, it was very complicated. So when I got back, I heard, you have two kittens, but there were four cats. And then there was one big one, and I thought, finally I figured out, well, clearly, clearly this is the father. And some days in a feral cat colony, sometimes they disappear, sometimes they're back. And every day I would have a new projection. Oh, because I read a lot about, like, sometimes the father kills the kittens, right? So one time, the kittens wouldn't, didn't come, and I'm like, the father killed the kittens. <laughs> you know, another day, it's like the mother disappeared. And, you know, the kittens wouldn't let the mother have food. And it was amazing, all the stuff I would do just every day. And then I reread Managing Your Cat Colony, and it said that you would go through all this emotional stuff, you know, and we do that with each other constantly you know i mean i love retreats this way because you know i just love looking at people's sandals and shoes or like how they walk or you can just make the most amazing stories about people and you know the 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 kind of old way of talking about this in the vipassana world would be that we could we can get attracted to somebody, and on a retreat we can like, you know, marry them, divorce them, you know, have kids, the whole thing. Like, and uh, we don't even know them. Or you can really not like somebody. You know, We call it the VVV and v, v the VR, the Vipassana romance, the Vipassana vendetta, but it's just somebody. You've never talked to them, you don't know them, but it's just something... Something is different. Instead of attraction, it's repulsion. And then there are the people you don't even notice. It's it's just, um, and it's it has nothing to do with them. Nothing. The best, um, the best projection I had on the cat, the cat colony, um, was I thought it was, I finally decided that it was a happy family, and that there was a father and a mother and two, cat, two kittens, and that they were this happy family, and the little kitties loved the father, and that the father cared about the cats, and had this whole thing. And then when I had them go get fixed, it turned out they were all female. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, you know, just total fantasy, you know? <laughs> just, it was so shocking. <laughs> All female, what? <laughs> Where did she come from? How did she get pregnant? <laughs> so, in regard to pleasant, unpleasant, aversion attachment, it's like we get caught up in the object of the wanting. We think the object of the wanting is outside of us rather than pulling back the projection and knowing that the the pleasant feeling is mental and it's happening inside us. And we get caught up in the object of the aversion or the object of the fear rather than pulling back the projection and seeing that we're getting fooled again. We get fooled over and over again. We think things are happening outside of us. When actually, even if you look at seeing, it's happening at the eye door, not out at the flower or at the star. The starlight is touching the, the eye, eye right here. And the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling is actually happening in the mind door here. Here. So when we talk about the suffering that ends suffering, and this, this is really important. This isn't a, a path of like just more and more suffering. It's meant to be a path where you're willing to um, investigate, to, to really check out well, the nuts and bolts of suffering. Like, why is it that we aren't okay? And not just like uh, an individual I'm not okay, it's just, it's a universal, whether you're um, a gecko, or a dog, or a cat, or a human, or a deva, or a god or goddess, that there is something going on here that really requires, not going through the thought process, but really the wise investigation of just checking out again and again, when we feel off, when we feel like we're not quite right when when we're suffering check it out and it's usually it really usually gets distilled down to getting caught in some kind of control that we can't control So, of course, mindfulness um, is the way that really empowers us to show up and have a presence with our experience where liberation is possible rather than being oppressed by aversion or oppressed by attachment. Uh, we, we learn to investigate it and... Um, see that we don't have to be oppressed by those reactions to what's happening, the change of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Um, So I'd like to describe like breaking down mindfulness into some aspects, but it's not meant to be a checklist. And it's not meant to be something that you go, Oh, recognition, okay, I got that one down. And then acceptance, okay, I got that one down. Interest, okay, I got that one down. (laughs) Non-identification. It's not like you go through a checklist as much as you start to see that when mindfulness feels very um, complete, that usually the, the awareness will include these aspects. And these aspects are also, it's not something you can command. But it's really like, again, you kind of um, start to explore what the opposites feel like. Um, So, for example, recognition is the ability to really merely know you're hearing, or merely know you're tasting when you're eating, or, you know, merely, but merely, I mean that um, very carefully. It's that ability to know that you're walking when you're walking, or sad when you're sad, or, you know, anything, anything that's happening. It's that recognition is coming out of the stupor. It's coming out of being asleep at the wheel. You know, it's coming out of being lost in thinking. And so we see that the opposite of recognition is distraction or being lost. And it's, it's very important when, when, when we start describing these aspects of mindfulness that we start to realize that we're not trying to demonize the opposites or say they're bad and wrong. It's much more that you start learning that <laughs> distraction isn't mindfulness. Do you see the difference? And that's so important because we can start judging our practice or blaming ourselves or hating our practice when really, any time, you can bring your attention, you can recollect it. That's one of the definitions of sati is recollecting. You're, you're, you're pulling your attention back from distraction. Kinesthetically, we might all have a different feeling or how, how, how that feels. For me, it'll feel like this it's like it's it's like Sreena Zargadatta Maharaj said um, it's affectionate awareness that brings reality into focus so you're bringing reality into focus with affectionate awareness so recognition has that um, all these aspects like I've learned you know as I've developed this (laughs) I've actually started to see that the recognition part will have a I, and they're a lot all ours you know they they have an aspect of the attention relaxing and you know it's like that's usually the first part of remembering to be here something relaxes you start remembering to be here and then you recollect the attention and then hopefully one receives something, one receives a vibration or the texture of physical sensations, or you receive sounds, or you receive um, thoughts as they are, as just thoughts. There's a, there's a quality of um, spaciousness. Um, And yes, we are uh, receiving non-conceptually. So, like when when I say we're aware that the thought is just a thought, so that you're aware that thinking is happening, um, you're aware that hearing is happening, you're not caught up in what's causing the sound. Yeah. So, um, that's one aspect of... Mindfulness. We taught our first teenage retreat on the Big Island of Hawaii this year, uh, and there was one 13-year-old that was sent by his grandmother to uh, make sure that his older sister, who was sent by her grandmother, same grandmother, uh, that she wouldn't run away. And, I, you know, I thought that's a terrible motivation, right? You know, he didn't even want to be there, but he was sent there to, like, make sure his sister didn't run away. I felt so much for him, you know, and he, he was just so restless. He had so much restlessness, and it hadn't rained for months and months, and it just it decided to rain a lot, and we were in tents. And um, one morning I was walking toward the big tent we sit under for the instruction sitting, and I saw that his tent had been completely rained out like and his stuff, all his clothes were wet and he was, he was just like trying to just cope with like not having slept much and this wet tent and I went up to him and usually at a teenage retreat you really have to go around and try to collect people and make them come to the sittings and this retreat, it never happened. I mean, the, all, of these, all of these teenagers just Came. It was really easy and amazing. And he, he wasn't coming. So I went over there and I said, What's up? And he's like, It, it didn't need explanation. <laughs> I just said, What's up? And he said, um, You know, not much. And then he said, I'm a little bit frustrated, but I'm trying to be mindful of it. And he said, Yes, I'm coming to the sitting. <laughs> it was so great. I'm a little bit frustrated, but I'm trying to be mindful of it. (laughs) I'm sorry to be mindful of it. We do that a lot, yeah? But he had the recognition and he was struggling with the acceptance. Pretty amazing. First retreat, didn't want to be there. A little bit frustrated, but I'm going to be okay, you know? So acceptance and resistance. And, you know, in this talk, I'm really emphasizing also the opposite. The opposite resistance, if you look at how much you're really present, then you know that resistance is happening a lot. And rather than feeling like resistance is not okay, bad, something you have to really push through, it's much more a sense of learning how to be mindful of it. You learn how to be mindful of being distracted. And when you come back from being distracted, like with recognition, you go, oh, okay, and you just do your best to be present. With resistance, it's, it's like you, you just like with sleepiness or boredom or the breath, you note resistance and then you just make space. You see if you can be interested in it, feel the physical sensations, or move away from it, go to the anchor. But it's really like a two-year-old mind or a three-year-old mind. Resistance is like, no, (laughs) no, no, no. I don't want this to be happening. I don't want to be here. You know, it's just like, I was born like that. (laughs) Somehow I really got the karma of that one. So it's like rather, it's like I always just say to myself, of course, of course, resistance, it's Okay. It's, it's that unconditional acceptance, okay? Acceptance isn't condoning. And this is where we can get really confused in practice. And, and with the last factor of enlightenment, equanimity, it's the same thing. Mindfulness isn't about being passive or about being dissociated or uh, about <clears throat> naivete or indifferent or... Um, not taking action, we get confused. Acceptance doesn't mean condoning. In this in this deeper mindfulness um, way, it means that we accept what's happening as a fact. It's a fact. Sleepiness is happening, and we can just, you know, do what we do around it. But low energy happens, or restlessness. It's like, when my sister died ten years ago, I had never had much restlessness in practice. I had some, but not tons of it. And she died, and I had about a year of, like, serious restlessness. And, and it was I mean I have to say it was really interesting like I could hardly sit and I'd never had to deal with it and I'd practiced for many years um, and I'd seen other people deal with it but you know I'd go sit down to sit and I'm like better do some walking meditation you know I just couldn't couldn't contain it that much I could a little but I just waited it out and did more walking acceptance And it's very important, like with the factors of enlightenment or with anything. It's like I've seen real extremes for people, or sometimes with myself like that. It's like often we're in some level of normality with this stuff, but sometimes we'll get something very extreme. So I had a student once at a three-month retreat. He had three months of restlessness. Just, it was awesome. Every interview, restlessness, you know, and it was really just like extraordinary, you know, that, that it can get like that, right? And then I had someone here one year that had Just Calm just every interview calm and then no matter what it is people think it should be different right and i'm like calm isn't so bad <laughs> it could be restless and she's like ah, calm and i'm like calm it's great calm calm these things can take years to ripen or, or work themselves out but i have to say it's it's great to have you know have the experience to say with this one guy with restlessness he did some other long retreats, and it didn't come up again. Like, it was, it, he came to another three months, gone. So, you know, it, it's very important, to, again, to get that sense that we're each unique, and we will be, usually we're ripening one factor of enlightenment or several, and sometimes they all come into balance, or we're struggling with... We're usually not struggling with multiple hindrance attacks (laughs) constantly. There's usually one or another that are more predominant. And this is how we grow and learn. So being able to... It's not like we, we disagree with the no, the resistance, as much as we say, okay, you know, it's okay... And then you open up around it and just investigate the, physical sen- the corresponding physical sensations in your body, particularly with re- resistance it helps. Usually I, I say that the the recognition, acceptance, interest, non-identification, it actually spells an acronym, RAIN. So we're at R, A, and then I, interest. Um, we've talked about it a bit, but you, you really can't force any of these. And interest and energy are very related. So that when we have enough energy, there's usually some interest in what's happening and when we're tired it's hard to muster up you know it's like that example of the young young man with the frustration it's like you can see the way i was describing it It was like i'm a little frustrated but i'm trying to be mindful it's like he was accepting he was trying to accept but certainly there was no interest and you'll see, you'll see, I'm sure you've seen already, that when that, it, it, it's almost like it just comes, like this shift comes, and there'll be like this genuine interest in anything. And it, this is related to the um, fourth, fourth uh, factor of enlightenment. Um, it's called pt or rapture. Uh, but I think of it as the deep delight in exploring the truth It's like when there's enough energy, it's actually, um, we overcome the pain-pleasure syndrome. So we can become interested in pain as well as pleasure, as well as neutral. We're just interested in how life is, just as it is, the nature of how things are. And of course, then there's the opposite. You know, when, we're, when it feels dull, when it feels boring. Um. <laughs> and, of course, the, the, the shift to being able to accept that, that have the, the mindfulness of that and allow that is... Um, the more you can allow the opposites, the more that you can, you can actually, these will arise. The more you don't react to the being distracted, the more you don't react so much to the resistance or, or the dullness and boredom, the more you can be okay with it and explore it a bit or just let it be, a, the, the energy will come for the um, mindfulness. And then the N, non-identification, is actually the, the most difficult to describe. It's usually the most difficult to understand. But it means that um, we're not taking personally the experience that's happening, whatever it is. Again, so if it's boredom, my boredom is identification. Or if it's like knee pain, it's like my knee pain... Or if it's like a good sitting, it's my <laughs> good sitting. Or if it's knowing, even if it's a subtle sense of being aware of awareness or knowing, it'll be my consciousness or my knowing. It, it's it's um, often again with all of these things, it'll just happen by itself. Something just opens up, and you get a, a glimpse of like what it what the experience feels like when it's not a possessive, it's not possessive, it's not controlled. And how we get to know this so much is, you know, the opposite again. What does it feel like to be taking something personally? You know, so that it's meant to be something that you feel as a kind of suffering. And that's part of, again, on retreat, what can be hard is, is the suffering that, and suffering, is, that, is having the time and space to actually feel the mind contract. It's here. The whole, the whole body can contract when, it's, when we're triggered, but it's just that feeling of it's like so deeply painful for experience to be mine, because it isn't. It really is just like the weather passing through. And I I really want to develop just a little bit more about the opposites because we have to really explore what we do when these opposites are there. Like when resistance is there, check it out, it's where we tend to disconnect. And if the interest isn't there, we tend to disconnect. Or when when the identification is there, we tend to disconnect. It's like we're not... We're not interested. And this is where we need to be really interested. When the practice is going great, you know, and think mindfulness, energy, concentration, equanimity, when things are more in balance, it's not that hard. I mean, it's hard enough because it takes, as you see, it takes so much protection to drop in like that. But it's when we're not dropped in, and when mindfulness is so elusive, That it requires, you know, kind of really attempting. Sometimes I call it being okay with not being okay. It sounds paradoxical, but it is possible. (coughs) And you've already done it. You've been here a week. I know you've been through low energy. I know you've been through boredom. There are so many times in my practice when I would like walk holding on to something. I'd be so tired, just like <laughs> oh, better not fall over. <laughs> if you if you look closely um, again, that. It's often when we feel the most off or we're, we're feeling the most suffering when we're the most identified. And uh, there's, a, there's a phrase, karmic not. There, there are certain experiences that we um, tend to want to hide and uh, that, that something will just get triggered and sometimes it could be the fear of rejection or anger or you know fear of death or fear of getting sick you know we have we each have our own particular karmic knot but it's it's like something we came in this lifetime with that is really something that we can't talk ourselves out of you know it's not it's not rational we can't just say oh get over it or just try to be mindful of it it's it's like it throws us off um and these, these require the most um, compassion, the most care. And I've learned probably um, the most about the seven factors of enlightenment from the karmic knots that I've had. So we tend to think of them as maybe the most difficult, but they're the most difficult. And I, I bring this back to like the beginning of the talk where it was the normal to gifted range of kids that tended to be the most arrogant, meaning that they took a lot of their talent for granted. They took a lot of, like their, you know, that it was easier for them to study than the kids that didn't have as much going for them. So in that way, it's harder. And so when we have a karmic not appear, it's humbling. You know, and sometimes we just call it yogi mind. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard that expression, yogi mind, but it's when we make a mountain out of a molehill and we just can't stop. It just <laughs> um, We just go on and on and on. Um, so in, in those cases, it's usually a hidden emotion. Again, it's like something that re- very young we slam the door on. We just like... That experience is really—it feels like you're going to die if you feel it or experience it, or it feels like you're going to lose some part of you if you experience it. Um, and just take great care with those, because again, it'll distill down to aversion attachment. It's—it's it's still universal. And it's usually when we think that we can't take it anymore. So if you hit these places where it feels like you're really caught in something, and you know there's probably a hidden something underneath it, but it's it's like a knot, Just just cool out. You know, maybe just... Have some have something out of your thermos, some green tea, or just like look at something pretty for a while. Just like just take a little break, sit under, you know, just just stop for a while and let it pass through. And um, it's where it's a place that we often can't be very mindful, but we certainly can cultivate compassion. And you can cultivate just care, just keep caring for whatever's happening. It's a care is a very pleasant feeling. So something can be very painful in our body, physically, emotionally, or mentally, but the awareness that's caring about it, that's outside of it, that's caring from the outside in, feels good. And as I said, because we often learn to slam the door on certain experiences, it's like we're not getting skill with it. And that's the nature of a karmic knot is just that we don't have the skill. And, and if we can even get a glimpse of, of working with it a little bit and then backing off, um, gentleness is the key. You get it, it's like you take a homeopathic dose of, of what's difficult and then you feel like uh, you accomplish something rather than trying to get rid of it. Because that's what we tend to try to do with karmic knots. We think if we're just with it, (laughs) we're going to get rid of this thing that it's been bothering us our whole life. Rather than seeing that it's not about getting rid of it, it's learning skill of how to be with it. So it doesn't have power over us. And and this brings us to the... um, the other definition, again, I've mentioned about mindfulness, but it's this, the soft readiness. Soft readiness really says it all. Readiness is that sense that mindfulness is having a strong mind that's ready for anything to happen. You know, and that, the truth is that anything can happen. Unpleasant can happen at any time. So the protection isn't trying to seal ourselves off from anything unpleasant it's really that you you get this readiness of mindfulness to be with pleasant unpleasant neutral but if it gets so that it's impossible and it's too hard you back off you you go to the anchor which is meant to be neutral or sometimes if it's really bad you seek out some pleasant so that you can balance yourself again And soft (laughs) is the the soft side of this. The readiness is the kind of strong part, but the soft really is indicating that it's really that um, without the softness, there's no ability to receive experience. And honestly, I can say, you know, again and again, I see that for most of us, we want to let go of experience before we've actually experienced it. (laughs) and just it's just our human nature we you know and that's why the phrase let go let go let go it's a beautiful phrase and and mindfulness has that quality of non-identification but really be careful of let go let go before you let be let be let be that you're really interested and you can allow the experience and get skill so that the next time fear comes along you don't go, I thought I got rid of that already. Huh. You know, it's like, that's what we do. It's not pure. It's, we ask, what is pure motivation? It's just, it's just not about that. It's, like, it's, it's more like fear comes up and you go, wow, I, I really was able to be that, with that a little bit last time. Maybe I can be with it a little bit more this time, but not expect it to go away that maybe I'll get a little more skill. And then if I can't be with it, I move to the anchor. And don't worry, you don't have to worry about the fear never coming up again. You know, we don't have to worry that if we, if we actually are gentle and decide, well, at this moment in time, I don't have the protection of compassion or mindfulness that maybe I can move away skillfully because what we usually do is move away unskillfully. So here we have this chance of, of that balance again and again of learning how to move away skillfully or move into skillfully. Not to move into unskillfully and move away unskillfully. <laughs> And I've really been bringing investigation in a bit, but investigation is said to be like when you go from a dark room and um, you're in the dark room and you turn on the light, so that it's that quality of it's a kind of questioning that happens where the mindfulness is there, but it, it it's like the the awareness can start to get this this bit of a little bit more, uh, can I get a little bit closer? Can I, am I really just walking and it's just a leg, the, just my leg stepping on that earth over there? It's like the question would be, what is the experience right now, free from any past idea or past <coughs> thought about it? So it's, it requires, investigation requires the willingness not to know what something is. And it, it, it really cuts through arrogance. It cut. It's very humble. It's like being willing, even though you have already attempted to understand the breath thousands of times, or being with the movement of the leg thousands of times, or boredom, or physical sensations, anything. But there's that willingness to check it out fresh. And the the questions this morning, to me, were all about investigation and equanimity. It's like, we tend to use our willpower to investigate. So, for example, when I said with fear, if we're using our willpower with investigating fear, we're usually going to be investigating it to get rid of it. And if we're not using the willpower, (laughs) but we're just using pure investigation, there wouldn't be any aversion or attachment coloring the investigation. Do you see the difference? One would be, I'm going to be with this to get rid of it or to get something. I want to get nibbana out of being with this breath. That's not going to do it. I want to get rid of um, anger, so I'm going to be with anger. (laughs) It's not it. It's not not genuine. It's willpower. So investigation colored with aversion and attachment is just reinforcing aversion and attachment. It's not... um, Pure. So if you notice that that's what's happening, you don't go stop it, that's bad. We're not saying these things are bad, we're just saying it isn't investigation. And to cool out, to build up the energy, which is the neck factor of enlightenment, energy is called, virya is called courageous energy. It's courage. And all of these are interrelated. It takes courage to be genuinely interested. So if we don't have the courage, again, you rest, you rest, you rest, you rest skillfully with the anchor. And ultimately, that, that is the, the, when you get that, the joy, the, uh, like when Sayadaw talks about rejoicing, the rejoicing in the practice is when you start realizing the practice or life, life keeps unfolding with Courage and rest, courage and rest, courage and rest. Skillfully, you get you get to know how to do that more and more skillfully. And of course, um, investigation is what um, lights up uh, anicca dukkha anatta. That that's for another talk. But that the relation, that's the relationship with when investigation appears not forced with willpower, but when it appears, um, one will understand not through the thought process more about anicca, dukkha, anatta. And this is done by not bearing down on what's happening, but by um, allowing what's happening to emerge by itself. It's said that the devas, the celestial beings, really like to hear about the seven factors of enlightenment, that they they like to come around and hear it. So I hope the devas have enjoyed hearing about them. And I'd like to end with a, a quotation from Suzuki Roshi from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. He said that, When you realize that everything is just a flashing into this vast universe, you become very strong and your existence becomes very meaningful. (coughs) So let's sit for a minute. So, with each of us doing our best without forcing, but really doing our best, we all help each other in this liberation process. May we be happy and peaceful of heart.